morning again. If you have a copy of God's Word, I hope you do. Go ahead and make your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And if you are a visitor here this morning, thank you for being here with us. We're grateful for that. My name is Ryan. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. And you just saw in that video, we're going through a series on 1 Thessalonians, which is a book of the Bible. There's 66 books that wake up one book of the Bible. And this is one of them, uh, 1 Thessalonians, so you can make your way uh, there. And as you're going there, just a reminder of why we're calling this series Turning the World Upside Down. And every week as I hear these news headlines on there, my heart just breaks. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. And if you remember several weeks ago when we started this, the, in, book, in the book of Acts, people looked at these Christians, these, the people that opposed them, that were opposite of them. And the title that they gave them were people that turned the world upside down. These people have come into this city and they've changed the city. And they've changed all this region. And ultimately, hopefully we'll get to it today, they've changed the entire empire of Rome. And it's because they came to the Lord and, and followed and obeyed the Lord's calling for their life as Jesus saved them through his great grace. So that's my prayer and my desire is that we continue to walk through this book. God would show us how we should work to turn our world upside down, our society, for ultimately our good but God's glory. And let me just encourage you, church, you are doing this. Uh, I've heard from multiple small groups how you are loving and you're caring for people in our neighborhoods that don't go to our church, that we don't even know. We hope to see them one day, but there's different connections with people in our small group that a whole small group has been able to serve families. And so I'm grateful for that. Thank you for how you're loving and you're reaching out to our neighborhoods. But not just to our neighborhoods, but you've been reaching out to the nations. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that there was a need for the Berber people of North Africa to have a Bible translation uh, that they could read and that missionaries could use to share the gospel with people in North Africa who do not know Christ. And so we set that challenge before us. And I just want to celebrate this morning that because of your faithfulness to give, we were able to finish this, pro this project so that now they've digitized the Bible that they've had, they've completed it, and they're being able to take it to the Berber people in North Africa. So let's clap and applaud that. Thank you for your faithfulness because you will, through that faithfulness and that generosity, turn, turn somebody's world upside down over there. And you may never meet them, ever. But because of your generosity, you've changed lives. And so I just want to say thank you. And let's just continue that, continue to move forward in that. All right, chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. This is a turning point in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So far, he's been basically greeting them and telling them how appreciative he is of them. And even saying, this is a little bit of what our community looks like as we change the world for God. But then in chapter 4, there's a turning point where he's going to get really practical. So it's not just like, hey, we love you. We're glad that you understand. By grace, you've been saved through faith. Christ has saved you. That's fantastic. But now what does it mean for your everyday life? Because we've got to understand that God doesn't want to just save you and be like, okay, move on. Live however you were living in the past. No, God desires to change us. To look more like him. And he's going to show us in the next three weeks, this week and the following weeks, three important things that impact our everyday lives that God desires for us to be shaped more like him. First, that we're going to talk about today is sexual ethic. Our sexual ethic. And then we're going to look at how we work as well as how we earn money. He talks about that in the next passage. And then after that, our attitude towards death. 
in even how we view our day. And those three things, sex and, and work and death, impact us all, right? And so God's word is extremely practical. But today we're going to settle in on the first one. And it's important for me just to say, just like David said at the beginning of service, that um, this is a, a PG sermon. It's not a rated R sermon, <laughs> but it is a sermon that's on uh, sexual ethic. And so we're just going to talk about what God's word says. But if you have kids and you're guests and you're just kind of nervous about this, we do have kids ministry that's waiting for you if you need to go up there, um, drop your kids off. Or if you need to go to the Welcome Center, that's fine too. And as I read the scripture and as I pray, that's a great time for you to transition to do that. But let's read, starting in verse 1. This is what God's word says. Finally then, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, and that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to us. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we, we most certainly do not want to disregard you. And so, Lord, help us to hear clearly your desire for us. We thank you that you don't try to hide it. That you tell us what your will is and your desire for our lives are. So help us today to hear your truth and believe it. Lord, I pray for those of us who feel shame over this topic. Lord, would you give us relief in what you're doing in us. And Lord, for those of us who feel anger towards others over this topic. Would you give us comfort through your word. For those of us who have a callous heart, Lord, would you bring conviction so that we would have faith in your truth. And Lord, we just invite you now to take a few minutes to pray and ask that God would speak to you through his word this morning. And ask you to do that right now. for me, that as we open God's word, that this time would be helpful, that I would be helpful to you as I teach you God's truth. So pray for me. Lord Jesus, would you save today and would you sanctify? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, every year... 1.6 million tons of cocoa beans are sent from the farmers of the Ivory Coast in Africa. 1.6 million tons of cocoa beans. And for those of you that don't know, cocoa beans is the primary ingredient to what? Chocolate, right? And it's fascinating because these people, they live in 
in, in, in mud huts, these farmers, and they work so diligently day in and day in night to, to plant these beans and to harvest them and to dry them, to get them ready for a broker to come in and buy them. And the broker comes in and buys them, and what happens? Sends them out to factories where they get lots of sugar mixed in with them and uh, dairy products and makes chocolate, or if you uh, have a finer palate, dark chocolate. And, uh, and, and literally, that, that's what they do. They make all of this through these farmers that are on the Ivory Coast. Now, what's fascinating is uh, there was an interview I saw just this last week. You can find it uh, online where an interview goes out to these mud huts and these places and interviews these farmers who uh, harvest these cocoa beans. And one of the guys he's interviewing, he says, do you know what cocoa beans are used for? He's like, I have no idea what cocoa beans are used for. All I do is harvest it and I send it off and I make, make my living. Like that, that's it. I, I don't know what they, they do. And he said, well, they're used to make chocolate. And he's like, I don't know what chocolate is. So the interviewer pulls out a chocolate bar pulls back the wrapper, and he breaks off a piece and gives him a piece of chocolate. And this guy, who had never tasted chocolate before, puts it in his mouth, and his eyes get super big, and he's like, this is amazing. Like, this is incredible. I have never had something like this before. And it's fascinating to me that a man could spend decades of his life, actually his entire life, harvesting these beans, but have no idea what they were made for, has no idea the goodness that is found there. He has no idea, although he's around them, although he spends his life in them, he doesn't know what the purpose is or why he does it. And the reason I tell you that is because we live in a culture that is saturated with sex. It's pushed on every level from TV to social media to I mean, anything you can imagine. It's pushed. It's all around us. It's in the air that we breathe. And yet we don't understand how glorious and great it is. We don't understand the ultimate design of why it was given to us. So though we live in this society that preaches it all the time, we don't understand that this was God's design. This is something that God made with intent and with purpose. And so what I hope is, is we see God's design, his attempt, and what he desires for us in this. And I want to start where Paul started in this passage. With this topic of sexual ethics, work, and ultimately death, Paul starts where I feel like we should start. It's all framed in living to please God. Living to please God. When we think of our sexual ethic, the goal, the primary goal is for us to live, to glorify God, to please God. God. That's what he says in verse 1. Walk to please God. And then he's going to tell us how we do that. Now what's interesting here is for some of us, we hear, okay, walk to please God and do it in these ways. And we're like, I mean, I don't want to do that. Like, don't impress me and tell me I have to please God in these ways. I want to do the things my own way. And there's something within us when we are going to talk about these different topics that is going to want to push back right away and say, no, I don't want to do that. Don't oppress me. Don't push me or hold me down by telling me I've got to live to please God in these ways. There's something in our hearts that's going to push back on these things. But if you really love the Lord, if you're really saved by Him and following Him, this is not oppression. This is joy. And this is love in that. 
I mean, if you came to me and you're like, Ryan, I want you to, to live and please your wife. I'm not going to say, oh, don't impress me like that. Don't tell me I have to please my wife. Anymore. i got to serve my wife. No, I love my wife. I, I desire to serve her in those ways. I want to. And Paul, as he starts this passage, that's what he's saying. Hey, do you love God? Here's ways to love him as you live and you work. This is what he's telling us. And it's really important that we understand that this living to please God is not to earn God's love. He's not like, hey, here's three areas of your life. If you do these well, then you'll earn God's love and he'll finally love you. Or you'll earn salvation so that you know when you get in heaven that you've tipped the scale where there's more good works than bad works. Like, that's not what Paul is saying here. And we know that because in verse 1, he starts and he says, finally then, brothers, or brothers and sisters. He's speaking to those who are in Christ. That's where he started this whole letter. He's writing to the church. He's writing to believers. And he's saying, hey, now that you're saved, you didn't work to earn God's love. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift. God cannot be bought by your good works. He can't be bought by my good works. So he looks at me, he's like, brothers, sisters, those who are already in Jesus, now walk and please God. Walk and please God in each one of these areas of your life. See, practically, what he's highlighting in this moment is you're a part of the family. You've been saved. And though you're a part of the family, that's never going to change. You're never going to be kicked out of the family. But being in the family will change you. It just will. It'd be like for me and my three kids. I love them. They will always be a part of the Epley family. They will. Even if they make bad decisions and bad mistakes, they will be a part of the Epley family. Always. They can't fall out of that. They're a part of it. But at the same time, being a part of this family is going to change their lives. It just will. I, I want to train up my kids in a way that they love others and that they impact our society in a, in a good way. I hope that when I see things happening in their life, we're like, nope, you got to change that. Like, you can't live in that way or that's not helpful to others or that's hurtful to your brother or your sister. That as they live in my family, they're changed. And the Bible talks about that kind of principle, that kind of idea and a, and a very big word in verse 3, it's sanctification. That whole idea that you're a part of the family, but God's still refining you and changing you, that's what sanctification is. And for those of you this week that are like, God, what is your will for my life? What am I supposed to do, God? He's telling you right here in verse 3, this is the will of God. The will of God. And for many of us, we're not even spending time looking that up. God, what is your will for my life? But he tells us in multiple places, not just this one, this is my revealed will. This is what I desire for you to do. And as you cultivate the, these things in your life, this revealed will for, for your life, then it will shape all the other areas in your life. All the other questions of where do I go and what do I do comes back to these foundational things. And so he, he starts and he says, this is God's will, your sanctification. Now, what does this, this big word of sanctification mean? Well, it comes from the root word in the Greek, holy. It means to be set apart. You might be thinking, thanks, Ryan. I appreciate that. Way to clear that up. Holy. I don't know what that word means. Like, that's a churchy word, too. Holiness, that idea of being set apart from, from, for something means that maybe you're, you're doing this right now, but you're taking and you're set apart for something different. 
So you turn from one thing and you live for something entirely different. You're set apart for this. And in this passage, that's what he's wanting to highlight to them. That, hey, guess what? You're, you're, you're set apart from this thing, but you're called towards this thing. Now, let me just say, at least from my heart, I'm so thankful that our God is not always a God of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That God says, no, 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 don't do this, but exchange it for something else. Do this. And so often we think of the Ten Commandments of don't, 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 but God gives us so many things that we need to be doing. And so in this passage, we're going to highlight two things. One, what we shouldn't be doing. And then the second, something that we should be doing. So first, let's live to please God by refraining. By refraining. That's what he starts with here. He says, abstain from sexual immorality. And it's, it's amazing because sanctification, our holiness, isn't only about sex. God just starts here. He starts with sexual immorality. He's going to get to how you work and how you spend your money and how you view death. But he starts right here and he's like, let's start with something really important. Your sexual life, your sexual ethic. He says, I want you to abstain from these things. And we're going to talk about this more in just a minute, but it's important for us to realize that God is pro-sex, okay? It's a good thing. He created it. He, he gave it as a gift. But right here, he looks at the abuse of that gift, and he's like, don't do that. Don't abuse the gift that I've given you. Abstain from that abuse. And this word for sexual immorality, you're a little bit of a Greek scholar, whether you realize it or not, because you already know what this word is, or at least what the root word is. It's pornea. It's the word that we would get pornography from, right? And in this passage, this word for pornea, sexual morality, is a very general term to talk about any sexual act outside of the boundaries of marriage. And so often, we can try to justify our sexual morality by just saying, well, this isn't what the Bible's saying. He's not calling out my sin with this. Like, sexual immorality means this or that. I even had uh, one person when I did a Q&A said, well, the Bible just speaks against adultery, so as long as I never get married, I've never broken God's law. I'm like, no, like that's not, that's not it. This is a general word to talk about any kind of sexual act outside of marriage. And let me encourage you with this too. If, you, if you're wondering, okay, how do I understand God's view on this? The best commentary on God's word is the Bible. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So if you read something, you're like, I don't quite understand that, then, then look at other places in Scripture and see how does God describe it? How does he define it? Because he's not trying to hide it. He wants us to know clearly what sexual immorality is so that we can abstain from it, refrain from it, and that we would follow him. So, okay, what is this, this general word? What is it? Well, in Galatians chapter 5, it tells us that, that sex is only for marriage, that sexual morality hits anything outside of marriage. So in Galatians chapter 5, it says this, now the works of the flesh, which he's speaking in the context as a, as a sinful negative thing, they're evident. Sexual immorality, it's the same word we just talked about, the very general term for anything outside of marriage. He says that's a, that's a sin. And then he says impurity and sensuality. So in the same sentence, he uses three words, and impurity and, sexual, and sensuality is talking about two things. One, what you would do before marriage. The sexual act that you would do before you were married. That's what this impurity is. And sensuality is, well, now that I'm in marriage, I'm choosing to be satisfied outside of my marriage in a sexual way. 
some of your Bibles might say adultery or fornication. And so in one verse, it's hitting everything, everything. But it doesn't stop there. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, God's word says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let your marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual immoral and the adulterous. He's saying that, that sex is meant to be within the boundaries of marriage. That's what it's saying, and that you would hold your marriage bed in honor above all. Sex is only meant to be with your spouse. And even the struggles that we have of, of homosexuality or, or same-sex attraction, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is going to lump that in with this is not God's design, this is not God's plan. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, this is what it says. Don't be deceived. Why? Because we're so tempted to be deceived on these things because we want to justify ourselves, right? It says don't be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, right, that's what we've been talking about, pornea, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, or thieves, or greedy, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now this is important, don't miss this. And such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And what this passage is saying is that there's people within the church who struggle with these things. Some people that lived a whole lifestyle and had their identity in these things. That are in the church in Corinth. They used to be that way, but God saved them and sanctified them and brought them out of that. Years ago, I was talking to a guy, Preston, and he said, my whole life as I struggled with homosexuality and I lived in that lifestyle, the only thing Christians ever talked about is my condemnation and my sin and how I was going to hell. And I thought, well, if there's no hope for me, then I'm just going to live this lifestyle more so. So he said, every weekend my identity was found on how many guys I could interact with. That, he said, that was, that was me. And then he said, somebody shared this verse with me, the last part of it. I'd always heard the first part, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven if you're like this. But I'd never heard that Christ died in my place to wash me and to cleanse me and to sanctify me, to justify me. I never knew that piece. And that's the beauty of all of this today. If you have a sense of shame or guilt over these sins that are in your life, then have hope in Jesus. And this passage gives us that hope. Our sins are deep, but God's mercy is more. That's what this passage is saying. Our sins are deeper than we even realize. Jesus takes it to a whole other level. It's not just acting, but it's what we're thinking about. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28 says this. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus is like, you're saying, well, I haven't acted in all these ways, so I'm good. I'm holy. And Jesus is like, have you thought it? Have you allowed it to, to run around in your mind? Okay, then you're just as guilty as the one who actually did the act. We're all guilty before the Lord, and we need God's grace. Why in the world does God care about our sexual ethic? Why in the world does he give us passage after passage after passage in the Bible talking about it? And why does he lean in so much to say, hey, even what you're thinking about, 
yeah, that, that's, that's a sin as well. Why does God keep bringing that up? And it's because he sees what many times we can't see. When we break God's design for sex in our lives, what we're doing is seeing tragic results. We're, we're, we're ripping our society apart because of this. God cares about it so much because he made the world good and, and we ruined it with our sin. And he sees over and over again how our broken sexual ethic is breaking our world. And you don't even have to just trust what God's word is saying or what I'm saying. I mean, there's research after research highlighting this truth. Yale published an article. This is a while back. They published an article where they interviewed all these college students about uh, sexual liberty. Just being able to do when, what you want, when you want, with whoever you want. And they found that college students were basically living how college students normally do. Moving from party to party and, and trying to hook up with people and living in that lifestyle. But what was fascinating is in this article, as they interviewed the girls, they're like, yeah, this is the world we live in, but we don't like it. We don't like it. Because when you break God's design for marriage, women suffer. And these ladies in this interview are saying, man, we feel used. We feel abused. We don't feel loved. And they have deep wounds in their hearts. University of Texas, there's a research professor down there who wrote a book called Forbidden Fruit. And in there, he says tragically that 25% of women in our country, their first sexual experience is unwanted or forced on them. 25%. One out of every four. So women lose when we break God's design between one man and one woman for a lifetime. But it's not just women that lose, children lose. It's amazing. A study that was done by the Children's Advocacy of Texas said one out of four girls are abused before the age of 18. One out of six boys. I know these are heavy stats, but I want us to see a glimpse of what God sees. He sees all the sin and all of this brokenness in this world, and it bothers him. So yes, he brings it up again and again and again, because he's like, guys, you have to see it. It's breaking my heart and it's breaking your world. Would you please respond in the design that I've given and in the command I've given that you would refrain from these things? Yes, for my glory, but ultimately for your good, for your world's good. Time Magazine did, did an article. Time Magazine, this is not a Christian magazine. They did this, this article where they were looking at the brokenness of marriages, which is primarily fueled by adultery, taking sex outside of marriage. And what they found is that it was impacting the wives, it was impacting these kids. And they asked, they, they interviewed the lady that was writing this article, and they said, how much do you think this really matters to our culture, to our society? And her response was this, as I quote, she said, it harms our society more than words can say. There's no single force that is causing measurable hardship and human misery in our country as the collapse of our marriages has become. It hurts children, it reduces the mother's financial security, and it's landed particularly devastating on those who can bear it the least, our nation's oldest families. Please may we see the depths of this and please may we refrain from it. May we not think, well, we are so much more sophisticated, we know how we can handle sex and what we can do with it. 
we can take it outside of your boundaries and how you created it and how you designed it, God. And we can do it our way. We're smart enough. We're good enough. We can do this. Because what we're finding in all these researches is we can't. It's continually breaking and ripping apart the fabric of our society and our marriages. And women are losing and children are losing. And us men, we are losing. And you might think, Ryan, this is, this is really hard on sex. Like, this is really heavy. Like, isn't there some good things in sex? Yes, there is. But we need to understand when we take this good gift from God and we take it out of his design, it's destructive. It is. You can think about sex like, like a fire. There's a lot of great things you can do. If you, you take a fire and you put it in a fireplace, you can warm yourself by that fire. You can make some s'mores, right? You can, uh, if it's a, a dire straits, you can actually take water and boil it over there to make sure it's clean. Like, there's a lot of amazing things that you can do with fire. But if you take that fire out of that fireplace right there and put it in the center of that room, it will burn down that house. It will burn it to the ground. So yes, it's a good thing, it's a gift, but when you don't have it in its proper boundaries, it's a destructive thing. I mean, if we took a, even a poll this morning in this room, some of the deepest wounds that you have in your heart, in your life, comes from taking that fire out of that fireplace and being burnt. Some of our deepest wounds are around our sexual ethic. And God knows that. So that's why he leans down in his, in his love saying, this is not going to be helpful for you. It's going to be horrible. God loves us and reaches down into us to give us hope. So many of us feel those wounds today. But God's not wanting you to remain there. He's wanting to bring you out of that. He's not wanting you to live in shame of something you did three decades ago, but to have hope and peace in your heart now because of what he has done and how he's forgiven you. And so maybe some of us fit into some of those stats that I said, but may that not crush our souls, but instead may that lead us to Christ, the only one who gives us hope in these wounds that we have, the only one that can take us back to that original design for sex and sexual ethics in our life. He is our hope. He's not rejecting us. He's receiving us as our hope. So as I think about applying this, things that we should refrain in our, in our lives, let me ask you a couple questions and encourage you to write these down and to think about it this week. As you open up your Bible maybe tomorrow morning and you're praying or you're, you're thinking about what God desires for you, your, His will for you, would you ask some of these questions? Will you, here's the first place, will you submit His design over your desire? Will you submit to his design over your desire? Our desires run deep. We're going to get to it in here in a second, but it says passion of lust. There's a deep passion we have in our hearts for this. God knows it. He placed it in us. But within the boundaries of marriage. So will you choose his design over your desire to take it outside of those boundaries? Second question. Will you repent from where you've been running? Will you repent from where you've been running from God? Some of us have been running from God for, for years now in this specific area of sexual ethics. Will you repent and turn from that, turn to Him in repentance? Last question. Will you be patient to wait 
Be be patient to wait to accept the invitation of Christ into your life. Be patient. And I know those are hard things, but through the power and the strength and the goodness of Christ, we can do this. And so church, let's refrain from these things. But God didn't just say, don't do this. He called us to do something. And the thing he's calling us to do is to reflect him. Let us please God by reflecting him. Now, the Bible, again, it doesn't say don't have sex. It doesn't say in verse 10 you should abstain from sex. It says abstain from sexual immorality. God created it. He designed it. It's a good thing for us. Sex is not the issue. Lust is. Sex is not the issue in our culture, in our world. Our lust for it is. And that's why God tells us practically here, if you're struggling with that lust component, control your body, verse 4 says. Control your body. To what end? What are we supposed to be controlling it for? What are we supposed to be doing? It says in holiness and in honor. Those are two key words that are telling us what we're supposed to do. Turn away from these things and do these things. Holiness is a vertical component. And yes, your sexual ethic does matter vertically. And this is why. Our world will say, your body, it's an amusement park. So just enjoy it. Live it up. Enjoy your body. It's an amusement park. Just live. Enjoy. Get all the joy you can out of it. It's an amusement park, right? But that's not how God describes it. God says, no, your, your word's not an amusement park. Or your, your, your body's not an amusement park. It's a temple. A temple for the living God. So how we handle our bodies and what we do with our bodies it matters to God a lot. If you're a believer, this is the place that God dwells. He chooses to dwell. The mercy behind that is amazing. And so, yes, God cares a lot about our sexual ethic because it does impact Him. Our bodies are a temple of God. But the second word for honor here in verse 4, that word honor is a horizontal word. That we would honor one another. That's considering someone else as more important than you. That you look at somebody else and say, I want to love them and care for them and want the best for them in their lives. And so I'm going to live in such a way that's not about me and what I can get out of it, but how I can serve and love other people. And this is what God is calling us to do. But what happens is instead of a self-donation where we're caring for others and considering others as more important than ourselves, we're being selfish and we're disrespecting them and taking from them things that we want. And you might say, well, how is, this, how is this selfish or how is this disrespectful if we've both agreed on it? Two wrongs don't make a right. Just because you're living selfishly and they're living selfishly does not mean it's right. When we look at somebody else and we ultimately, we might not say it out loud, but we think, I don't care about your feelings. I don't care about your life. I don't really care about you. I just want your body. And that is disrespectful. That's disrespectful. That's not honoring them. And whether that's in person or through a screen, we are not called to dishonor people and disrespect them. But to honor them and to care for their good far more than our own. And God in his word so closely connects this holiness and honor to our relationship with him. In verse 5 it says, don't live with a passionate lust as the Gentiles do who don't know God. He connects these two together and he's like, you think there's not a connection between God and your sexual life? Well, look at the people who don't know God. And how do they live? 
They live with a passion of lust. They're living for themselves and their selfishness and not for you. But those who know God, it shapes how you view others. It shapes how you view yourself. Because this is what we're called to reflect, church. Because the reason why it's different, the reason why our sexual ethic is different, is because God, His desire is that whole intimacy should never be divorced from whole commitment. Whole intimacy should never be divorced, divorced from a whole commitment. This is God's design. If you're going to share your whole body with somebody, then you should share your whole life with them. This is God's design. If you want to have a deep, true relationship with somebody, then you give them everything. And we see this through what God has done for us. He loved us so much, he showed us what a good and perfect relationship should look like. He looked at his people and he's like, I want full commitment for you. I want there to be no other gods besides me. No other idols. I want to be your love alone. But he didn't just say, love me. He said, because I love you. And God said, I will give everything for you. He's like, I want your whole commitment. And I'm going to give my whole life for you. This is God's design. And so Jesus comes and literally gave his all. Though he was rich, he became poor. He gave his life on the cross to forgive us for these things so we wouldn't have to bear the, the shame and the guilt and the sin that we're feeling as we look at these stats. God has given us hope in this moment because he is wholly committed to us. And so when we're wholly committed to him, we have that perfect relationship. Whole intimacy and whole commitment. It's a reflection of the gospel, not in a romantic way, but in an eternal relationship way. And God would look at us and say, this is what I want your marriages to look like. Christians, this is what I want your sexual ethic to look like, so that the world around you sees it and says, that's different. That's different. Church, that's what happened in Rome. If you look back at the Roman culture, people in Rome, they had... The men had four women in their lives. And you can read about this. Four different types of women. You'd have a, a wife that would take care of your home. You'd have a mistress and a concubine. And then somebody who was just your playmate that you had fun with. But every one of them in the Roman culture was allowed to have, you were allowed to have sex with them. And it was destroying them. It was destroying their society. And when Christians come on the scene, they have a different view. It turned the world upside down. And they saw that women were being honored like they'd never been honored before. They saw kids were being cared for in ways they'd never been cared for before. And it changed Rome. It changed the whole nation. It was a Christian nation. Where before they're persecuting and they're, they're running people out of the city like Paul who's writing this letter. Later they're accepting and people are believing because they see that this works. Yeah, it works because God created it all. And he designed it all to work in this way. So he looks at us and he's like, reflect my great love for you and my care for you. And we will be fully committed to him. And this will be a reflection of our sexual ethic that our whole body commitment will be a whole life commitment for marriage to serve. This is God's desire for us. And when we respond to that, several years ago now, um, there's a family that invited us over to their house for dinner. And they were a part of our church and as we go over there, we're just talking with them, and we're learning about their past. Uh, where are y'all from? 
how did you guys meet? Just all the things in life. We're also learning about their dreams, where they hope to be, how many kids they like to have, where they want to work, and all these different things. And we're having all these conversations about their, their past and where they want to be. Center to all of that is the most important decision you're making in your life. Coming to know Jesus. And she shares her story of how Christ saved her and redeemed her and brought her out of things. And then he shares his story, and, and Brian had come to know the Lord later in life. And I said, man, how did you hear about the gospel? And he said, well, this guy was preaching a sermon. And I said, really? What was his name? He tells me, and I knew this guy. I was friends with this guy. And I was like, man, I'll have to tell him. He's like, yeah. Um, I said, well, what was he preaching on? Do you remember what his message was about? And he's like, yeah, I do remember. And I'm expecting like John 3.16 message, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Or maybe like a Romans road message where uh, we've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God, and that by grace through faith we've been saved, right? That's what I'm expecting. And that's not what he said. He's like, yeah, I can, I can tell you what the message was about. It was about sex. And I said, what? Come again? What? He's like, yeah, yeah, the message was about sex. I was like, how in the world did you come to understand the gospel through a message on sex? And he said, well, I can remember so clearly that this was an area in my life where I had ran from an area in my life that I had shame and I had guilt. And for the very first time in my life, I saw, man, I could have forgiveness from God. And not only forgiveness, but at the same time, God had a plan for my life. And I saw the mercy of God like I'd never seen before. As I saw he was fully committed. And he loved me so much that he would do everything, even give life to save me. He's like, so yeah, understanding this whole life and whole body commitment, yeah, I saw the gospel for the first time. Man, that's astounding. And I pray that today that's true for those online or even in this room, that that's you. That maybe for the first time you've seen my sins, there are many, but his mercy is infinite. Just keep going. And for those of us that know Christ, we've been saved by him. We need to understand this truth from this passage that he's sanctifying us. He's making us look more like him as we struggle with these different things in our life. These struggles might come with conviction, but not condemnation. God has taken that condemnation on the cross, and now he's helping us to re run from those sins and return to him. And so remember God's truth. God's word says if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Not just to forgive you of your sins. The passage in 1 John says, and cleanse you from all, all unrighteousness. Past, present, future, all of it. If you confess it before him, he is faithful and just to cleanse your soul and to declare your heart example that we should reflect. We reflect this whole life commitment because you are fully committed to us. Before there was a full relationship with you. 
And God, I pray that you would help us to reflect that in our marriages, in our, in our sexual ethics, that we would reflect the gospel well. But also that, God, you would help us as we have trusted in you and believed in you and forgiven us of our sin, help us to refrain from certain things. Not just because it harms us, but ultimately it harms others and our community and our society. God, would you help us to do what we think is impossible? Because we know apart from you, it is impossible. And so, Lord, help us to do these things. Lord, help the person today to take that step of faith forward to be forgiven of their sin. Help that person take that step of faith forward to repent of their sin. Help us to take those steps forward to to a person that we trust, an individual that we could confess our sins to one another, that we could pray for one another, that we'd be a community together living in such a way that it's totally different than what our world has to offer. Totally different than what our world's saying. And even when those would mock us for this, Lord, may we look back to you, the one who has accepted us through the cross, the one who has a purpose and a plan for us through his son. And may we look there and find our acceptance and our hope and our peace in him. Lord, may we remember ultimately not our sin or their debts, but your mercy. Because his mercy, it covers our sin and cleanses us of all unrighteousness.